economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right, so we're going to continue on with this economic freedom talk. So this is part two. Just to do a quick recap anyway, we think we have some evidence that shows that countries with more economic freedom, where individuals are able to choose what they want to buy, if they want to give it away or sell it, those that property is protected through police and court system that's reliable and stable and non-corrupt. That is what we're measuring in each country. And so each country that has data, there's 42 data points in five different areas. And so those areas we left off last time, size of government, the idea that if the government is, has higher spending as a fraction of the overall economy, then that's less money in private hands and more money in concentrated hands. And that's not individual economic freedom. So that was the size of government. Legal system and property rights, I basically mentioned already with police and courts. Sound money is people having access to money that is going to hold its value for a reasonable amount of time, that there's not crazy amounts of inflation that's eroding the purchasing power, and that we have to go look for other ways and worry about that. So in the United States, we're pretty fortunate in that regard. For the most part, we had a little little trouble in the 70s where we got inflation rates up to like 14%, but due to people like Wayne Angel and Paul Volcker, they sucked that out of the system. And and uh, we've been pretty good since the 80s in, in terms of inflation, whereas other countries like Zimbabwe cost you about $50 trillion to buy a can of Coke. And so those systems have collapsed. The most recent probably would be Venezuela. And so this is where Bitcoin, I think, is going to play a big role in the upcoming years, maybe within, within the next 10 years is my prediction, that that can be really solid, especially for these developing countries where they don't have a reliable central bank like we've come to enjoy here in the United States. So then the last two categories where we're picking up today, we've got freedom to trade internationally and regulation. So Peter, you want to kick us off on freedom to trade? Yeah, so I think the best way to start with freedom of trade, especially since this has become kind of a hot topic over the last, you know, six years or so, is to disentangle some of the arguments that happen about free trade. And so a lot of times what happens before we talk about like things like tariffs, which are, you know, prohibitions on free trade, tariffs and quotas, a lot of times in order to justify these things, people say that the United States has a trade deficit with China. And that's a very, just in general, that there's sort of misleading thing, maybe not intentionally going on, but a misleading thing in that we've over aggregated to the point where we don't even know what we're talking about. Can you say what most people mean by trade when they say we have a trade deficit with China before you say why they're wrong? Sure. What what most people mean is that the total amount of the the dollar value of the amount of the products that we buy from China is greater than the dollar value Mm -hmm. of the products that Chinese citizens buy from. American citizens. But this is where it gets tricky is it's not actually the Chinese government or the American government. And this is where some obfuscation sometimes happens. It's individual Americans. And so if you 
you know, went to a store and you bought something made in China, you're contributing to this trade deficit. But of course, uh, worries about trade deficit are a little overblown because it's not necessarily a bad thing that we get more products from China than they get from us. And so, for example, the, the classic example here is I have a trade deficit with my grocery store. The grocery store never buys anything from me. I only buy products from my grocery store. And so I have a terrible trade deficit. But obviously, this isn't a bad thing. And so free trade means that we, we don't focus so much on worries about trade deficits and use that to, to bludgeon you know, American buyers, consumers, and prevent them from, stop, from uh, buying goods from Chinese companies or, or Indian companies or other things like that. Free trade is the ability of people in China and people in the U.S. to buy and sell from each other and engage in mutually yeah, beneficial Just because they're from a different country, we're not going to hold that against them. And so they have different circumstances. And what we're really doing with international trade is the same thing we do with Kansans trading with people in Missouri, That's right. is that we're better utilizing resources. So some states might have different climates that allow them to do oranges or, or other things. And so their workforce could be, the composition could be different with levels of education or factories or access to minerals, you know, you name it. We're so rich in the United States in terms of the abundance of resources scattered over our nation that we take a lot of this for granted. But there's still other resources on the other side of the world that can be better utilized. And part of the reason there's been a difference in prices is that we didn't have trade before. And so the innovation of shipping containers, for instance, has allowed that those goods to be shipped at a very low cost over the ocean and over to us. And that has continued to allow both people in each country to prosper. So, yes, Jeff. Uh, can I try to summarize what you were saying? You can tell me if I, I have it right or wrong. Okay. Uh, so the traditional argument about deficits that we hear and why deficits are bad, you know, we have this deficit with China. We are sending more dollars over to China than they are sending to us. And therefore, you know, oh, no all our money is going over to China and that, you know, that's supposed to be bad and the heads explode. And one possible <laughs> reply to that is, look, you could do the exact same thing from the Chinese perspective and say, oh no, look how many, we are sending more goods over to the US than they are sending over to us. Pretty soon they're going to have all our goods. Oh no. Right. Yeah. And so that would be one possible way to respond to that argument. And I think Krugman in the nineties maybe wrote some good stuff yes, about trade deficits. Right. Is the last good work Less, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so that that's that's one end of the argument. Well, and so let me let me just on that kind of to build on that that because we purchase more from them than they bought from us, it's like we owe them money is one way to think about it. And how that comes back to Americans is that they buy financial and real assets of ours. So on the flip side of a current account deficit or the trade deficit is the fact that. Chinese are investing more in us than we're investing in China. And so that gets lost in the mix as well. We benefit from lower interest rates because they are essentially saving and loaning us money, if you will, but they're actually taking equity positions in, in that stuff to ownership. So maybe, you know, some people might be anti that too, but you can't, you can't please everybody, but it ultimately creates a win-win situation in the, in the finance world as well. Yeah. So there, there's kind of the, the two ends of it. And Russ is absolutely right. That's an accounting identity. Identity that's true for sure. You can think of two ends to it, though. Is that the first problem with it? This argument against free trade is that the exchange itself is beneficial for both people. 
Now, whether it's beneficial for the United States and China is a different question than the United States person who engaged in the exchange and the Chinese person who engaged in the exchange. Obviously, it's mutually beneficial for that reason. And so on the product side, there's a, there's benefits from trade. But even, you know, that that aside, there's also this other benefit, which Russ brought up, which is the, that this implies that there's more investment coming into the America, coming into America than is going out. I think we need to really drill down on that win-win part. You know, the Chinese producer is winning by selling stuff to Americans. The American consumer is winning. The person who, per- and, and down to that individual level, like you're doing, which is what I like, that they have, they weren't forced to buy a Chinese good. They could have bought an American good. They found greater value in the Chinese good relative to the price, so they bought it, right? So that's how they profited, so to speak. The individual American profited off the purchase of being able to buy that good less expensive. The Chinese, now that's a little bit different story with communist China, but in theory, they uh, they might have been forced, but most likely not forced uh, since the communist China has embraced market principles over the last 20 years. So they do have, as long as their businesses don't get too big and that the government, you know, that they start to, the government starts to think, oh, you're a little too big for your britches. There's lots of basically private businesses going on in, in China too. And so my point is that person or individual Chinese person benefited as well. And so that's the win-win. The loss though comes in because now we have the perception that you could have bought that American good and you put the American producer out of work, of course, is where the where the rub is. And same thing with the Chinese consumer. The producer could have sold it to another Chinese person, and now that person didn't get to buy the good. So the winner's wins outweigh the loser's losses is how it shakes out mathematically is the way I like to phrase it. It's kind of a little cobbled up, but in people's minds, why do both countries win? China wins, United States wins. And it's because within each country, there is a winner and a loser for the short term as, as resources have to reallocate to different spots. But in general, the winner's wins outweigh the loser's losses within each country. So there's a net gain from trade total. And the old argument is that since each country wins, each country individually can figure out maybe a little safety net or retraining program or whatever. The win- since the winner's wins are bigger than the loser's losses, the winners can somewhat compensate the losers. That, and that gets a little sticky on how that actually plays out. But in theory, in the economist's chalkboard, it works out great. It's yeah. potentially Pareto optimal. It's potentially, yes, that's right. I would not say, so we won't go too far. I, would, I wouldn't say it's, oh, okay. It, yeah, it could be potentially Pareto Potential. Yeah, so long as you give yeah. enough money to the producer that it offsets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Russ is right. This works out mathematically. And another way that we can see this is as countries become more free in their free trade economic freedom score, as we mentioned in the last po- podcast, these freer countries become more prosperous. Yeah. And so Robert Russ is right. goes down. And- yep. Yep. And so Russ is right. The comparative advantage math, if you do like Ricardian math, works out to show this. But the real world also reflects this, which is what we see in the economic freedom index, which is why it's so important. I think the argument is 2 billion people have been pulled out of extreme poverty, not from any aid program, but from simply opening up their markets. So that's, I think we should focus on that a little bit too, right? Because what we have just said is that the winner's wins outweigh the loser's losses. Now, somebody might say that's all fine and potential Pareto optimality sounds good, but if it's not actually going to be Pareto optimality and it's not actually going to help the people who are the least well-off in those countries, 
then so much the worse for free trade, right? And so perhaps, but we actually have these empirical evidence that poverty goes down in countries that are freer. So that should show um, that if you were worried, say, about the winners just keeping all of their winnings and not compensating the losers, we have empirical evidence that uh, the losers actually are compensated in the freer countries. Since the word Pareto got said more than once, listeners, it's an action or a move that makes at least one person better off without making anyone else worse off. So it's a Pareto improvement in welfare, as long as whatever you're doing makes at least one person better off without making anybody else worse off. Yeah. And I will say, you know, if we talk about the United States empirically, and this is kind of to Justin's last point, is when we use U.S. protectionist policies and so a tariff on China or a tariff on coffee and fruit or something like that. We have to think about who that makes better off and who it makes worse off. The person made better off, in theory, would be the coffee producer in the U.S., for example. Let's go with Peru and trade with uh, Peru and coffee. Well, who's made worse off? Well, the Peruvian coffee producer and by extension, all of his workers and all the owners of capital in Peru. And so, you know, when the U.S. uses protectionist policies, actually does end up hurting probably the, the worst off places, because the less we trade with, you know, these developing countries, the less that their incomes can grow. Yeah. And it's to subsidize just this very specific industry in the United States. Yeah. Concentrated benefits, dispersed costs. That's right. Um, so everybody's coffee is, and, and some people are okay with this, or they think that they're okay with it. That, well, I'm willing to pay 50 cents more for a bag of coffee if we're keeping that, saving that job. It's just not sustainable in the long run. And the people who do lose their job will ultimately, likely, of course, we don't know a certainty, find other positions as resources are, are changed around. So, well, and the, the great thing about free trade is that you still have that option, right? To pay 50 cents more to the coffee producer in the United States if you really value it that much. But if you enforce a tariff, you don't you don't have the option to buy it for 50 cents cheaper anymore. And I want to hear, I guess you had a comment, Justin, but I want to hear from you on the, on the moral side of that. Like, is that an important aspect that we, one, Americans made worse off let's say multiple Americans are made better off, whatever. And so that the, the winners wins outweigh the losers losses. But is there a moral claim that the person who lost their job was entitled to that job or to keep status quo? Is, is there any rights that we're infringing? Like, are we being moral, I guess, by opening up for free trade because we're thinking about some people's welfare over other people's? So I think there are economic questions, and there are political questions, and there are ethical questions. And I think it's too optimistic to think that answering all of the questions through one of those lenses gives us the right answer from any of the other directions, right? So um, it might be the case that, you know, I actually think we have more of an ethical duty to people who we are closer to. Okay, um, right, right. And in that sense, their well-being places more demands on us than the well-being of people who are further away from us, either physically, emotionally, or, you know, uh, you know, however you want to construe. Um, well, that's why I wanted to hold it to Americans if we're measuring closeness by living on the same island. But I know what you're saying. It could be that in your state, you're going to lose a factory or something. And then you might feel differently about that compared to others. Yeah. So I think the question about, you know, our rights being our rights being violated 
that's one question. But another question would be, what would what ought we to do in such a situation? Should we support a domestic producer or support you know the cheaper foreign producer? I don't think we are going to get an across the board answer. If it's an ethical question, which I think it is and what we ought to do, that is going to completely depend on the specifics of any given case and of any individual's relation probably to that producer, maybe even that uh, producer's relation to the town or whatever. So, I, But I think it's extremely clear to get that we make it clear what the economic analysis tells us about a case, about a case because yeah. that can inform you know, what we think our ethical duties are in a case like that. For me, one of the problems is always it's a static analysis versus a dynamic analysis. And I think people's well-being and other things like that really needs to be more dynamic, that there's the short-term hurt. And I think that plays into the ethics of it too, but I don't know how to frame that exactly. So we'll go to break and see if we can frame up. That'll be our teaser coming out. We've spent the time on on international trade. I think we have a few things to clean up there, but we'll be moving into regulation here in the second half. We'll get back to you in just a moment. By 2030, the Gordon Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to students' experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. The Wharton Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. We have student programs like our reading colloquium coming up this Saturday where we're talking about economics, environmentalism, how we can use free market principles to help uh, make environmental issues um, improved, uh, whether that's uh, through pollution or uh, animals in the wilderness or other fun things? Can we assign property rights to those sorts of things and make the world a better place using some market principles rather than command and control? That's the type of thing that you're going to get here at Ottawa University. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, so we're back. Maybe a few things to wrap up on international. I just wanted to be clear that how the how this fits into the index is that they'll look at each country's tariff rates. And so the lower your tariff rates are, if you don't have tariffs, and the United States is very good in this area, we still have a few lingering tariffs, by the way, but for the most part, uh, that those have been reduced among developed countries over time through different policies in exchange for free markets since World War II. But also other countries struggle with like black market exchange rates. So if they are keeping their exchange rate fixed, that's a form of interfering with freedom to trade individually, quotas and other uh, regulations that might be on the books. So those areas are the type of thing being measured in the uh, freedom to trade internationally. So, and that kind of rolls us into regulation, which this category, area five, is really talking about domestic regulation. So now we're not talking from country to country, but within the United States, what do we have minimum wage? Can you hire and fire people? 
I was surprised when I first visited India, I learned that it was on the books that if you hired somebody, you had to keep them on. You couldn't let them go. Imagine that type of regulation on the books. The, the work days that are allowed, the work hours, um, all of this, of course, plays a role domestically. So regulation, Peter, what do you think on that area? Yeah, so when I think of regulation, one of the first places I go to is Hernando de Soto's book, The Mystery of Capital. Mm. And in this book, what Hernando de Soto does is he tries to explain why it is in Western countries like Western Europe, United States, sometimes Japan is included in, in there, even though it's not a Western country. Why capitalism has succeeded in these countries, but fails in places like, you know, the Soto's from South America. So South America is a great example. And what DeSoto points to is basically regulations. And so specifically, one of the things that he looks at is the steps it takes to start a business. And he goes through and finds it's so cumbersome to start a formal business in the country he's looking at. Justin, do you know what country you're looking at? No. Russ? I want to say Argentina or I, something. I, I, think, I think that's right. But he, he finds that it's so costly to do that, that people just decide when they, they want to create a business that it's going to be off the books. But the problem with that is then you can't get loans, you can't have access to capital, you can't do official business with other countries. Like all part, of part of the cost is getting, let's say, a, an okie-dokie rubber stamp from some government official. And there's stories where people go there, it's closed, the line is long, they say... Uh, you want to start a business today? Okay, well, I can get you in for this uh, okie-dokie evaluation three months from now. Mm -hmm. And so literally, I think, I don't know if it's part of that study or a different study, that it would take like a year and a half right. and like an unbelievable amount of hours, like a thousand hours worth of time of between standing in line and waiting and, and doing other things and forms and other things. And those all just add to the startup cost and it's pretty discouraging for uh, maybe an entrepreneur who came up with the latest, greatest idea that they'd love to start doing it now. And so then, yeah, they might turn to just the underground market. So Yeah, and this is something the U.S. actually does really well. It's pretty easy to start a business here. Filing to become a, a corporation is not difficult. Getting a business license is usually pretty low cost. And, you know, you can do most of your applications online nowadays, too. Yeah, so, so when I moved to Kansas, I started a limited liability company. And I was able to do it in 45 minutes just to give an example. So I was able to set up an official legal entity in 45 minutes. I knew what I was doing from the other ones that I've been involved with. But if you didn't know what you were doing, you probably within a couple hours, you could figure out how to get that registered with the state. You have a tax ID number. I'm talking the whole, whole nine yards. Everything's done in 45 minutes. Estonia has most places beat 18 minutes. So wow. around the world, it can they, they go and look at how easy is it to start a business. Wow. And so that's one end of things. Another end is that it seems like we're trending maybe in a, a further away direct direction from economic freedom, though that Russ kind of brought up already, but we could get into it, labor market regulations. And yeah. so hiring and firing, wage that's rates and all that stuff. Now. So yeah, what, what do you think on that minimum wage? If it goes up to 15, is that hurting our score or helping our score? Definitely going to hurt our score, certainly on paper. And then I think even more importantly, it will, it will, the score will continue to be a good predictor of uh, prosperity. That is, if our minimum wage goes up across the country, the prosperity in, of the country is going to go down. And I don't think a lot of listeners might know that the mi current minimum wage is pretty much ineffective, at least in our little town of Ottawa, Kansas, a, a low, no-skill worker can go pick up a job for $10 an hour. And so the fact that there's a minimum wage at $7.25 is really not impacting a lot of different local economies uh, around. And so their argument that it should be higher could hurt places in terms of their uh, labor market freedom. 
And it's also the incentives are messed up to me because then if we can hire somebody for 10, but the government switches it to 15, sounds real great for that worker until a machine replaces them a year later when they otherwise would have not bought that machine. So I think the, the minimum wage discussion is important. And one of the things, so let's take a $15 minimum wage, right? A lot of the arguments you hear about the minimum wage are things like, well, you know, nobody should be having to raise a family on anything less than $15 an hour, right? Right. But the minimum wage isn't the median wage. It's the minimum wage. It okay. is the, the lowest you are allowed to hire somebody right. for per hour. And when you set it at 15, you effectively make it illegal to hire somebody who isn't worth $15 an hour in terms of their labor. Yeah, and another uh, way to frame that, though, is to say you're also taking away the ability of a high school kid who's more than willing to work for $8 an hour. That's exactly what I was just going to okay. say, which is, look, uh, when you are starting out in the labor force, you are not worth $15 an hour right now for the most part, right? Yeah. And so a $15 minimum wage makes it illegal for a firm to hire somebody with very little skills. And then, of course, you are going to see, exactly like Russ was saying a couple sentences ago, you're going to see low-wage workers be replaced by automation. Yeah. Tom, Thomas Sowell's quote for this is that the real minimum wage is zero, just being that you know, <laughs> no matter how high you make the minimum wage and the higher it goes, the more you run the risk of turning the minimum wage into zero, which is that people aren't going to get jobs if you make the minimum wage high enough. And even crazier, now, uh, may, maybe more extreme than Russ on this or, or Justin, but I, I'm against any sort of minimum wage. I think that companies should be able to pay whatever they want. I think workers should be able to pay companies to work there if they really want to. In fact, that actually sort of does happen in some places. And maybe we could talk about why political privilege allows that to exist. But anyways, yeah. Uh, so I, I'm- No, you're not more extreme okay. than that. Good, good. However, just from political feasibility, I know that that would never happen. But sure, I think there would be some creative ways. How I would characterize that is to offset it with potential safety net subsidies. So get rid of the minimum wage and whatever circumstances have it, you're only making $3 an hour, right? And you're not being oppressed by, you know, that's usually the thing. Well, why would a why would an employer pay $7 an hour when they- can pay three. And the reason is they're not going to get anybody to work for them for three. So I think market forces are going to keep all of those pay rates probably at the lowest I can imagine be like $5 an hour, maybe. And think of how fun the world would be if we had the 15 year old who, instead of sitting around playing video games, can go to the restaurant and make five bucks an hour. Would they do that? Yeah. Would we have a lot more people serving us when we're at you know, picking up our tables and other things. I, I think it'd be kind of cool. We're, we're helping a youngster and maybe they're making five or whatever it is. But if we get into the idea of trying to support a family, blah, 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 we'll have other mechanisms to support up that wage with, with some sort of earned income credit or negative income tax, whatever. Yeah, so and, and different things to do that. Real quick, and where, where I was going with that is that the, the really crazy part, you know, even if you do accept that there's some need for a minimum wage, what we see if you look at the, you know, presumably President-elect Joe Biden's, tax, his plan right now for COVID, he's got a, a $15 federal minimum wage. And, and to me, uh, you know, it's unbelievable because it seems obvious, you know, even if you're in favor of some sort of minimum wage, that it shouldn't be the same for every state in the country. I mean, should Nebraskan restaurants who are struggling to fill the seats in COVID pay the same as like 
an LA restaurant that has billions of dollars in capital and like smart board TVs that they've got up in their restaurant. I, I mean, that seems crazy to me. Yeah. And so, you know, the, this, the, the minimum wage regulations, I think, are, are tending in a really bad direction right now. Not just that it's not already bad, but tending in a much worse direction than they're already at. Yeah. And, and I guess I just want to bring the focus back to this economic freedom idea. So within each country, are people having more choices or less choices? And the bottom line is a minimum wage at any level is taking away a potential choice of somebody to work for less than that minimum. It's against the law. And so that's what they're measuring here with the minimum wage as being one variable in this whole whole set of variables. The hiring and firing. So did I say the India thing? I can't remember now if I said that off air or on, so I guess I'll repeat myself, but uh, that you can't be fired in India. There's There's been different laws on the books and also true in Guatemala still of it being difficult to let people go. So both uh, the freedom of the employer to say things aren't working out, you're fired, do you face some sort of fees or regulations or fines uh, for doing that sort of thing? Again, that's reducing economic freedom. Collective bargaining, you wanna talk about unions a little bit, Peter, what it was collective bargaining, is that good, bad, or otherwise, in terms of relating it to economic freedom? Sure, so I always think of collective bargaining you know, there, there's sort of two ways you could think of it. One is the way that most people think about it. We talked about it, which is the legal thing. And so nowadays, collective bargaining means that there's a union that's been sanctioned by the law to engage in bargains with the employer and the employer is not allowed to do certain things in the inter- interaction with the union. I'm all in favor of a different definition of collective bargaining, which is that workers get together and, you know, they decide we're going to come together and make decisions about what we want to do as workers as a whole. Right. And so I have no problem with workers getting together and bargaining with their employer. The, the issue I have is when there are specific laws that allow unions to be the only workers that can work for a company that empower that union. They're the only workers allowed to bargain for wages that could be higher. And oftentimes the, these bargains actually result benefits for the, the insiders at the expense of the outsiders of the union. And isn't this doubly worse when the company that the unions are bargaining with is actually the state? So like with public sector unions, mm-hmm. uh, when the union is bargaining with a government sanctioned monopoly. So we've got government sanctioned monopolies on both sides. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's really uh, well said voluntary unions on all four. Of course, people should be free. And it's a sign of economic freedom that workers could form together as a group and all ask for whatever, higher pay or whatever the the case is. But as soon as government comes in and empowers that and authorizes it and uh, gives them, we're we're no longer in a voluntary position anymore. And the doubly worst thing is is so true. And there is provisions on the books that sometimes uh, say they have to be uh, with certain types of uh, employment. I wanted to bring up the banks real quick. So the most heavily regulated industry in the United States is the is banks and the financial system. And so I think there's some pretty good arguments that stuff like the financial crisis was part of government involvement, if not all, uh, in my humble opinion, when we have the government so intimately involved. And also with some of that regulation, we find that there's government failure in terms of the actual monitoring they're doing. The Wells Fargo case comes to mind where the Wells Fargo was having too many accounts opened up because their employers, the employees had incentives for clients to open accounts as like a little bonus structure or something. And so they found some fraud and stuff. But here's the thing, the, the, they were being monitored by the government during that whole time. Why didn't they bust them on it, right? And so there's a lot of wrongdoing that seems to get overlooked. 
So it's not always the best answer to get rid of competitive forces, even within a sector like the banking. And, and of course, we have the FDIC insurance and, and there's reasons we have maybe some more regulation, although I'm still kind of a proponent of old school, like, uh, should I put my money in that bank? Well, let me check out, is that bank trustworthy? Uh, today's systems and technology, similar to going to a restaurant, we could pull up a Yelp app and say, how many complaints has you know this local Ottawa bank had in the last year? What's their rating, right? And so we as consumers could be a little more careful in where we choose the bank, but but it's not. We've kind of gone down this path of uh, government is protecting us in the in the banking sector, which leaves a lot of uh, moral hazard and and issues with people doing stuff that they wouldn't otherwise do if the banks or if the government wasn't there to bail them out. Yeah, I'm not a doomsayer or a prepper, but my take on this is that it, the American banking system and the American government are so heavily intertwined nowadays. I mean, you you can look at some of the tapes after the financial crisis where. Uh, the regulators were working with Goldman Sachs yeah. to to create a new system after the fact. I just total, had my money in banking class. Listen to that. Total. total uh, oh, well, I, I forget the name of the woman who was the uh, the lead critic. It's a really memorable so name, but Herrera or yeah, something yes, like that. something like Herrera. Yeah. But they're they're so in bed with each other that my thought is like I don't I don't really put much stock in the FDIC insurance thing because if the banking industry ever actually goes under, I can't imagine that the government is also going to be able to prop itself out and pay out insurance. You know, maybe that's that's too worrisome. But I, I can't imagine a situation where our whole banking system collapses and we also still have a government. I mean that's yeah they're they're so in bed together uh, that it seems not to me. Yeah. Well the exciting innovation is Bitcoin coming along that's going that's right. to probably really changed the face of that um, system in the sense that we don't have to rely on the banks, which also rely on the government now, the intertwined of the two with peer-to-peer payments and other things that can go on with Bitcoin. So, Yeah. And if you doubt Peter's assertion about how intertwined they are, you can just look at the revolving door of, uh, you know, who works for Goldman and who works for the treasury. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just go in and out. All right. So yeah, that's uh, regulation. Any other last comments? I mean, you know, there's in, in administrative fees and all that kind of thing. Ta- oh, and then tax compliance. Um, you know, how hard is it to file your taxes? Uh, what does that look like? Do you have to have an attorney prepare your uh, books? And so those are the things that the more we have the government involved with the private sector, the higher the regulations are. Um, then the lower the country is going to score in that area five with regulation. Yeah, I think my last note on that is the regulation in the Freedom Trade International, you're really related in that like the main problem with with regulations is that they prevent mutually beneficial exchanges. Uh, I think that's the, the primary piece of importance. The secondary piece of importance with regulation is something Justin just referred to and has to do with the minimum wage as well which is that the more government is regulated, the more politicians have power to manipulate businesses into doing the things they want rather than the things that their consumers or their shareholders want. And so like the minimum wage, I think is a great example of this. It's always odd to me that most places in the country, if you want to hire someone for less than, I don't know, $7, that it's legal for you to do that and you get in big trouble if you got caught. But in Washington, D.C., my guess is the minimum wage for a 20 to 30 something year old is probably zero dollars because they're all unpaid interns. <laughs> to, to me, a, a lot of the regulations that we see are things that benefit both politicians and very politically related corporations. And to me, this is cronyism. And so regulation has both those elements. It, it stops mutually beneficial exchanges and it creates, it fosters cronyism where big government, big business win at the expense of, you know, 
people in the Midwest who are trying to hire for a Kmart but can't because they the people aren't productive enough. Yes, so marry the seven dollars. Kissy week. face, big government, big business playing kissy face right. is what I like to say for that cronyism bit, and it's the most detrimental part I think of our our system, and and that's what these uh, researchers uh, down. Uh, Jim Gortney led the cause uh, years ago, and so now it's more with uh, Bob Lawson and Josh Hall and uh, Ryan Murphy um, that are putting this together every year. And you can see where the rankings um, change. So we've got um, at the top of the list is Hong Kong, who is surely going to be going down, uh, at least down in numbers, um, as they get more pressure from uh, communist China, mainland China. So uh, th this data, uh, we're talking about data from 2018 because there is a lag time with getting all of this information into one spot. So in 2020, uh, just a month or so ago, that the 2018 stuff was released. And so I think the 2019 is going to reflect the Hong Kong's issues and uh, will be interesting to see. It's also going to start to reflect Trump with higher tariffs. So we're going to drop in some of those on this most latest uh, list, the United States is six, and I think we were tied for five, six um, last year, if I remember right. Yeah, and gover so, government spending is gonna knock us down to what we spent with coronavirus, disproportionately. Yeah. I think the last thing maybe to wrap up and see if you guys have any comments on this is uh, our more socialist friends, uh, so to speak, in Norway and Sweden and whatever. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders might point to those countries and say, hey, that why can't we look like that? And um, what this data shows is that they are actually much more capitalist in some areas. And so this idea of, of capitalism versus um, socialism is actually really complex. And so I think this um, measure does a neat job of, of parsing some of that out. And so it is possible to have a fairly high tax, high spend uh, with whether it's healthcare, education, uh, but also be much freer on freedom to trade internationally, for instance, or regulations of business. And so they are uh, very much uh, pro-business in other aspects. And so I think um, they end up in the, the top quartile usually. And so that's where some of that prosperity comes from. It's a complex issue. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that we could talk about maybe at a later date, but I think a lot of the rhetoric from people on our side of the fence is very bad in calling like every policy that's government intervention socialism, because mm -hmm. it leads to something like this, where Bernie Sanders says that Sweden is a democratic socialist country and Sweden says, we're not socialist. That's weird. <laughs> and, and, and the reason is like, because people are being fuzzy with the terms. I, I mean, and you can, there are different explanations of socialism. Mises's explanation was you're a socialist when you get rid of your stock market. That, that was his threshold. But I, I think there, we need to have a call to be careful with the term socialism. Not every intervention is socialism. Not everything we don't like is socialism. Socialism is a very specific thing, which involves ownership of the means of production. And Margaret Thatcher said, socialism is great, actually, until you run out of other people's money. <laughs> <laughs> I just happened to read that on our reader for today. So that might be a good way to end it, unless there's any final thoughts. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. We appreciate you all listening. Uh, we do have a little donate page at Gorton Institute website, uh, which you can find at Ottawa University. And um, also, if you enjoy what you're hearing, the five-star rating helps us rise through the ranks for other people to see us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.